0: This month, I'm taking a look at some very old cases, particularly the March 1969 murder of Jane Mixer. To prepare for coverage of her case and the 2005 trial that found Gary Leiterman guilty of her murder, I needed to take another look at the actions of serial killer John Norman Collins. Rather than have you go back and listen to the original coverage, I decided to update those episodes and re-record them. This episode discusses the work of a serial killer whose methods include rape and torture. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back in the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Before Charles Manson spurred his followers on to a series of gruesome murders, and before Bundy terrorized women from Washington to Florida, and before John Wayne Gacy started hiding bodies beneath his Chicago home, Michigan offered up a murderer, the likes of which we'd never seen, a handsome, educated young man from a loving family, a murderer who tortured, stabbed, shot, and strangled his victims a predator who enjoyed visiting the remains of the women he brutalized, and he also enjoyed taunting police with his ability to avoid detection. A college student, aspiring elementary school teacher, and one-time model, the Ipsilanti Ripper, the Coed killer, the Michigan Murders. You can call them what you'd like. Today, we begin our look at the crimes that rocked not only a college town... But the state of Michigan, and in time, the nation. This is one of the darkest chapters of Michigan history. So come with me and explore the crimes of John Norman Collins. John wasn't from here. Not from Michigan. He was born John Norman Chapman on June 17, 1947. Born in Ontario, Canada, the youngest of three children, he had an older brother named Jerry and an older sister, Gail. His parents, Richard and Loretta, they divorced when he was still a toddler. His mother quickly remarried, but that marriage didn't last. Wanting a fresh start for herself and her three children? Loretta packed up and moved across the Detroit River to Michigan, where she married her third husband in eight years, William Collins. Collins formally adopted her three children, leading to the name change from Chapman to Collins. Unfortunately, Bill Collins was an alcoholic and prone to violent outbursts. The couple separated in 1956. If you're familiar with the childhood of many serial killers, the state of Collins' childhood with moves, name changes, domestic violence, and a revolving door of father figures should be sending up red flags. And while her husbands often fell short, Loretta Collins worked hard to provide a good life for her children. They settled in Centerline, a Detroit suburb in the southern part of Macomb County. She sent the kids to St. Clement's Catholic School on Van Dyke, just north of Ten Mile. Now, the school closed in 2011 due to lack of enrollment, but the church, with its beautiful arch-stained-glass window, is still an active parish. John was a regular kid. He enjoyed sports, he excelled at football and baseball, his teachers liked him, they called him bright and attentive. In high school, he lettered in football and baseball, and after graduation, he decided to follow his older brother, Jerry, to my alma mater, Central Michigan University in Mount Pleasant. John was a defensive back for the Chippewa football program where he quickly learned that his 180 pound, six foot tall frame was better suited to high school sports. He was outmatched in college games. Collins moved closer to home by leaving Central Michigan University for Eastern Michigan University his sophomore year. Once he transferred to the Ypsilanti based school, he declared a major, elementary education. John Collins wanted to be a school teacher. One of the advantages to Collins being in Ypsilanti is that he had family nearby. His mother's sister, who he was quite close to, was married to a Michigan State trooper. Ypsilanti is also much closer to his mother, who lived in Macomb County in 1966. Collins began his sophomore year as a Huron at Eastern Michigan, When classes ended in the spring of 67, Collins remained in the area. It was on June 9, 1967, that the first woman was murdered. Mary Therese Fleesar had just finished her sophomore year at Eastern. She'd grown up in Washtenaw County in the town of Willis and attended Lincoln High School in Ypsilanti. A devout Catholic, she started her day at morning mass. Then she'd gone to work for a few hours. By nine o'clock that night, the midsummer heat was overwhelming in her unair conditioned apartment that she shared with a girlfriend. Fleazar slipped on a light cotton dress and tan sandals, telling her roommate she was going for a walk. She was seen walking back to her apartment when a man in a blue or gray Chevy pulled up alongside her. A friend of Mary's recognized her and witnessed the exchange from the window of her own apartment. Whatever the man in the car said... Mary shook her head in response and walked away. And that was all the friend saw as Mary headed out of view. Five weeks later, Mary's body would be found, August 7, 1967. Her remains were located on an abandoned farm in Superior Township just north of Ipsy. Dr. Hendricks performed the autopsy. He determined that Mary had been stabbed 30 times in the chest and abdomen. Her fingers had been cut off, her feet removed. The coroner suspected sexual assault, but because of the advanced state of decomposition, it couldn't be confirmed. One thing law enforcement knew for certain was that her body had been moved days after her death. Initially, her remains were concealed in a stand of trees. Later, she was moved a few feet away into a field. Fleasars remains would be moved a third time. Was the killer hoping to make her more visible? Did he need his work to be discovered? Fleasar's death was brutal, cruel, and horrifying, and it was thought to be a one-off, maybe the work of a drifter. Her family identified the tan sandals found near the body as belonging to Mary, and the family dentist provided dental records so her identity could be confirmed. Mary Therese Fleasar, a devout Catholic, loving daughter, and good friend, was no longer missing. With the autopsy complete, Mary's remains were transferred to Moore's funeral home in Ypsilanti to prepare for burial. Late in the day, a nicely dressed young man arrived at the funeral home. He introduced himself as a friend of the Fleesar family and asked if he could take a picture of Mary. The receptionist told him that would be impossible. The young man persisted, suggesting that a mortician fix her up the receptionist used a firm tone to inform him that no one would be seeing Mary's remains. The two went back and forth, but the receptionist held her ground, and the young man gave up and left. She would later tell police two things she remembered about him. One, he drove a blue or gray Chevy, and two, he wasn't carrying a camera. Police interviewed Mary's friends and classmates. Did she have a boyfriend? Was she seeing anyone? Had there been a breakup? No, no, and no. Mary was a good Catholic girl in the truest sense of the term. She attended Mass. She didn't date. A friend called her one of life's innocents. Fleazar's funeral was held at Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Milan. In the days and weeks after her body was recovered, tips and leads came into the police department, but Mary's case quickly went cold. Almost a year after Mary disappeared, another student vanished. This time, it was 20-year-old Joan Elspeth Shell. On June 30th, Shell was last seen at a bus stop. She'd missed the last bus to Ann Arbor. Against the advice of her roommate, who was with her, she decided to hitch, eventually getting into a two-tone Pontiac or Ford, containing three young men. Shell told her roommate, Susan Colby, that she would call her when she arrived at her boyfriend's place in Ann Arbor. When the call didn't come in, Susan phoned the police to report her missing. Ipsilanti police were at the apartment by 1 a.m. taking a report and getting a description of the missing student and that vehicle. Susan said she did not see the driver, only a young blonde man sitting in the back seat. Shell's body would be discovered on July 5th. She'd been raped, stabbed repeatedly, struck in the head, and her mini skirt was tied around her neck. The medical examiner determined that just like Mary Fleasar, her body had been moved as there was an uneven rate of decomposition. Above the waist, she was in poor condition, but her lower extremities were well-preserved. Shell's autopsy revealed that the time of her death was about 1 a.m. on July 1st. Dr. Hendricks performed the autopsy. He'd also done the autopsy on Fleasar. He pointed out similarities between the murders to law enforcement. Hendrick's remarks led law enforcement to believe that it was likely that Flezar and Shell were victims of the same killer. Detectives began retracing the women's steps in the hours prior to their deaths. Ann Arbor police went to the Department of Motor Vehicles and began searching for two toned pontiacs or fords, and looking at the owners and drivers. They made a composite sketch with details provided by Susan Colby. And while this was important work, it got them no closer to the killer. They would wait several months for the next victim to appear. If they had concerns about a murderer stalking the young women at Eastern and in Ypsilanti, it wasn't shared with the press. No need to worry anyone. Not yet. About nine months later, on March 20th, 1969... The body of 23 year old University of Michigan law student Jane Mixer was found in a cemetery in Wayne County, just across the county line from Washtenaw. As a young female college student, she was certainly the right type for this killer. But the method of death and presentation of the body didn't fit. Mixer had been shot, her body laid out on a grave, her shoes set neatly beside her. The shoes were on top of a book, Catch 22 a pair of stockings that were not hers were wrapped tightly around her neck. Like with previous victims, she'd been killed elsewhere and her body dumped at the cemetery. Mixer disappeared right after posting a notice on the rideshare board. She needed to get home to Muskegon in Western Michigan. Mixer was recently engaged and planning a move to New York City at the end of term. Eager to share the news with her family, she posted a ride request to wanting to go back to Muskegon to tell them in person. Unlike other victims, Mixer was not sexually assaulted. However, her underwear and hose were pulled down. Remember, the stockings wrapped around her neck did not belong to her. Jane Mixer was an exceptional young woman. Enrolled at the University of Michigan Law School, she was headed home that spring day to tell her parents she was engaged to be married. Instead of planning a wedding they would bury her at the Restlawn Cemetery in Muskegon. And while the method of death and lack of sexual assault and torture were a marked departure from previous victims, her name was added to the growing list of those murdered at the hand of the Ypsilanti Ripper. Almost 40 years after her body was found, another man was tried and convicted of Mixer's death, meaning that the state of Michigan now believes that Mixer was not one of Collins' victims. In 2004, a nurse from the area, Gary Earl Leiterman, would be tried and convicted in her death. And watch for a new episode about the Jane Mixer case in the weeks ahead. But for now, we're going to keep her on the list because that's what law enforcement did. At the end of March 1969, just days after Mixer was found, Marilyn Skelton, a 16-year-old student at Romulus High School, went missing. She was last seen hitchhiking in front of the Arborland Mall, which is almost directly between Eastern Michigan University and the University of Michigan campuses. The city of Romulus is in Wayne County, but it's just east of the county line with Washtenaw County. Marilyn's body was found two days after she was reported missing. She was discovered behind a vacant house in Ann Arbor, just a few hundred yards from the location that Joan Shell was left the previous summer. Skelton had been beaten severely with a blunt object to the point that her skull was caved in. Her own shirt had been stuffed into her throat to muffle her screams. Marilyn had been sexually assaulted with a tree branch, which was still inside of her when her body was found. She'd been whipped with a leather belt and her body was covered in welts. Like previous victims, her clothing was found placed nearby. And like previous victims, Skelton was dark-haired, I should mention that all of the Michigan murders were perpetrated against brunettes. But Skelton, she was much younger than previous victims. The use of a belt and rape with a foreign object? Those were new. The location and the fact that her garter belt was tied snugly around her neck? These are signatures of the killer and match what we've seen in previous killings. The wad of fabric in her throat to muffle her screams? That was something they'd seen before. Despite the possibility of ties to a local motorcycle gang, Ann Arbor Police, led by Chief Walter Krasny, linked Skelton's violent death to the Ipsy Ripper. Detective Sergeant William Canada was lead on her case. He spent 12 long hours after her body was found, coordinating a search of the area, looking for evidence. A newspaper report at the time described his face as tired and drawn. And he told reporters that with 30 years on the job, This was, by far, the worst thing he'd ever seen. Skelton's body would be identified by a Wayne County Sheriff who recognized the girl from prior drug-related investigations. In the months leading up to her death, Marilyn's family was frustrated with her. They didn't like that she was using drugs or hanging out with hippies. They were disappointed that she'd accepted a diamond engagement ring from a 19-year-old who lived in Ann Arbor these were not the choices they wanted their daughter to make. In January of 1969, when she was just 15, her mother took her to the hospital, hoping that her daughter, who was thought to use LSD, marijuana, and heroin, would get clean. She told friends and family that Marilyn had a bad reaction to the flu shot, which was why she had to stay at the hospital. Marilyn was eventually released from care and returned to her family. In the days before her death, Marilyn began selling her belongings, including her bicycle and typewriter. She begged her parents to give her $10. In today's money, that's like $70. And this activity, this giving away her stuff or selling her things, had police wondering, could Marilyn's murder be the work of a drug dealer that she owed money to? When Marilyn disappeared, the Skelton family was in the process of moving from Romulus to Flint, Her parents wanted her away from the bad kids she was running with and thought that the change of location, along with her father's new job, would help her beat her addictions and settle down. They did not know that Marilyn's time had run out. When it was time to lay her to rest, Marilyn's funeral was private. Her friends and her fiancé were not welcome. It was one last attempt by her parents to keep Marilyn away from the people they didn't approve of. Helen Skelton showered her daughter with the loving attention that she'd sought in life. And Helen planned the funeral carefully. Marilyn would wear a yellow dress and be laid out in a pale green casket surrounded by roses. As a grim aside, I've read that when Marilyn's viewing was held, instead of having a closed casket, her face was turned to the side, concealing the horrific damage done to one side of her skull and neck. Remember, she'd been beaten so severely that her head had caved in. So, listeners, was Marilyn just some renegade hippie determined to reject the straight-laced lifestyle her parents encouraged? You should know that her home life was no sanctuary. Both of her parents drank to excess regularly. Her father would smash furniture while drunk and later burn the damaged pieces in the yard. The Skelton marriage was not a happy one. Her older sister had run away from home to escape the abuse. And her older brother, he coped by drinking. And Marilyn, she turned to drugs. Instead of receiving sympathy for the difficult life she'd endured and the brutal murder that ended her life, the five foot five, one hundred ten pound Marilyn was dragged in the press. She was a hippie, a druggie, someone who hung out at the Grandy Ballroom in Detroit and ran with a rough crowd previous victims were college students. They were good girls, but not Marilyn. News reports of the time all but said she was asking for what she got. It was terribly, terribly unfair. Hopefully now, almost 50 years after her death, we can see her as she was, a frightened, unhappy child, trying to make her way in the world and dealing with a difficult home life. Marilyn was trying to create a happy, safe place with a boyfriend or escape from reality with the help of drugs or music. She was murdered just three weeks after her 16th birthday. We will never know if she would have made it out the other side, past her addiction and into a happier life of her own choosing. Marilyn is buried at the Tyler Street Cemetery in Van Buren Township. And as terrible as Marilyn Skelton's death was she would not be the youngest victim of the Ipsilanti Ripper. And listeners, we'll be right back. In the spring of 1969, law enforcement knew they had a serious problem. Four dead women, all killed in a violent manner and left out in the open. They were dealing with a sadistic killer who mutilated his victims, a killer who tried to get into the funeral parlor to have one last look at his work, College students from Eastern and Michigan were frightened. Families sent their sons and daughters off to college in what was supposed to be a safe place, and they were worried. Pressure was coming in from the state capitol in Lansing as well. Governor Milliken's daughter was a junior at the University of Michigan. He wanted this killer caught, and he wanted him caught quickly. With law enforcement sat down to analyze similarities among the victims, they came up with this list. All of the victims were white women with brown hair. All of the victims wore dangly earrings. And when their bodies were recovered, most of them were missing one earring. All of the victims were menstruating at the time they were murdered. Two of the victims were Eastern Michigan University students. Mixer was a University of Michigan graduate student, and Skelton was still in high school. But she knew people at Eastern Michigan University, and her boyfriend lived in Ann Arbor. All of the victims had their throats cut or slashed except for Jane Mixer. Four victims in less than two years. Two victims in one month. The killer is picking up the pace. They needed evidence to track him, and what they had wasn't enough. Remember, the last time the Ann Arbor community saw a vicious, brutal murder was the Pauline Campbell case back in 1951. This was a completely different animal, And police were doing what they could with the resources they had at the time. Law enforcement didn't have to wait long for more evidence to appear. Unfortunately, the evidence came in the form of another murdered girl. April 16th, 1969. Thirteen-year-old Dawn Bassam was found by the side of the road. She'd been stabbed, strangled, and left with her shirt and bra pushed up, leaving her exposed. A white cloth was stuffed deep into her throat. She hadn't been killed on the roadside. Law enforcement found her sweater and other items in the cellar of a barn nearby. Don's mother, Cleo, was a widow, and she'd reported her daughter missing just after midnight. The 8th grader's body was left on the edge of Gale Road, near the site of what is now the Radrick Farms golf course. Even today, 50 years later, this area is pretty remote. Our killer has a pattern. Dawn, Joan, and Mary were dumped within a mile or two of each other. Law enforcement collected evidence, including making casts of tire tracks left at the site where her body was abandoned. The Bassam home on LaForge Road was a quarter mile from the Eastern Michigan University campus. Now, Dawn's father died of cancer in 1964, which left her mother to raise the children by herself. Dawn's sisters were older, they were married and out on their own, and Dawn had a brother, Louis, who was just a year older than her. She was petite and pretty with glasses and looked older than her 13 years. On April 15th, Dawn Bassam went into town to meet a friend. Her mother was hesitant to let her go, especially when she learned that this friend's name was Earl, but she allowed it, reminding Dawn to be home before dark. After Dawn had her visit with Earl, the two walked back toward her house, but she declined his offer to walk her home, probably because her mother wouldn't like her hanging out with the 17-year-old boy. As Dawn walked, she passed two of her male schoolmates. They were out fishing. She asked if they would walk her home, and they declined. They were probably under similar orders to be home by dark, and walking Dawn home would delay their arrival. Later, they told police that Dawn did not appear worried or frightened. When Dawn wasn't home by 8 o'clock, her mother began making calls to her friends, asking if anyone had seen Dawn, but no one had. Around midnight, she placed a call to the Ypsilanti police reporting her daughter missing. She said that Dawn was wearing blue pants, a white shirt, orange sweater, and a rain jacket. Dawn's body would be found April 16th, another body dumped on the roadside. Dawn had been strangled with a length of black electrical wire. Her chest slashed open with a knife, and her pants were not with her body. When her remains were sent for autopsy, it was confirmed that Dawn had been sexually assaulted and that the person who assaulted her had Type O blood. A comprehensive search of the area, including a nearby abandoned farmhouse and barn, turned up Dawn's sweater. They searched the home for prints, but none matched back to Dawn. There was broken glass in the basement of the home, and that glass matched fragments found in Dawn's shoes, which had been discarded further down the road from her body. Days later, police performed another routine check on the farmhouse. In the basement was one of Dawn's earrings and a bit of fabric from her white blouse. These items were not there previously. The killer was taunting them. At Dawn's funeral, her white casket was carried by six of her friends from West Middle School. She was laid to rest beside her father at the Forest Hill Cemetery in Ann Arbor. On May 13th, something unexpected happened. The barn that was thought to be the site of Don Bassam's murder burned to the ground. The fire appears to have started around 3 a.m. Could the killer be destroying evidence, taunting the police once again? But within days, an arrest was made. 21-year-old Ralph Crass, who lived just down the street from the Bassam home, They later arrested his 19-year-old housemate. Apparently, the two had been out drinking and stopped at the barn on their way home. They set some of the old hay on fire in the loft, then watched in horror as the barn was engulfed in flames. What they didn't share in the paper is that once the fire was extinguished and the sun was up, they found five fresh lilac clippings in the driveway of the property. Could these flowers have been left by the killer to symbolize the first five victims, Mary, Mary? Joan, Marilyn, Jane, and Dawn? Dawn's murder brought a change to the community. Sure, she was the most recent victim, and she was the youngest. But Dawn was from Ypsilanti. The other girls were from other communities, but Dawn, she grew up there. People knew her sisters, they knew her mother, they'd watched Dawn grow up. They either knew her older brother, or they knew her sisters. They remembered her father— and they knew how her mother struggled to do right by the kids after his death. It was late in the day on April 16th when an announcement was made over the public address system at West Junior High School, sharing the sad news that one of their own was gone. I suspect that Dawn's death, the murder of a local child, had a lot to do with changing public opinion on the case. The community now had literally hundreds of tearful, frightened children who were suddenly incredibly aware of their own mortality. In June of 1969, the killer returned to his co-ed roots with the murder of 21-year-old Alice Elizabeth Callum. Callum was from Portage, Michigan, and she was a recent graduate of the University of Michigan. Her neighbors described her as polite and quiet. Their only complaint against her was the amount of water she used when developing photos in the darkroom that she'd created in her unit. Callum had applied to the graduate school at Michigan and planned to study social work. Callum had been stabbed repeatedly in the neck and chest and finished off with a shot to the head from a 22 caliber rifle, her body dumped by the side of the road. Officers patrolling the area found her clothing and the blood-stained murder site near the intersection of Earhart and Joy Road. I want to mention the similarities between Callum's murder and Mixer's murder. The strangling, stabbing, and shooting, that's what happened to Jane Mixer, and Callum's death looks a lot like that. Marks on the bullet from Callum were similar to the bullet used in the murder of Jane Mixer. Both women were shot with a twenty two caliber long rifle. Because Callum had also been shot, police at the time now felt they could connect Mixer's murder in March to the Ypsilanti Ripper. Same caliber weapon, another headshot, He was deviating from his norm, but now he'd repeated that deviation. With the knowledge of Callum's death, her parents needed to come to Ann Arbor from their West Michigan home so they could identify her body, but they were stuck in Portage. Callum's father had a heart condition and he could not drive. Her mother, who was overwhelmed with grief, understandably, was in no condition to take the wheel. Law enforcement from Portage, which is about 100 miles or 160 kilometers from Ann Arbor, drove them to Jackson, Michigan, which is a 60-mile or 99-kilometer trip. Once they arrived in Jackson, they were transported by Washtenaw County Sheriff's deputies to Ann Arbor, where the Ann Arbor police took them to the university hospital, where their body of their daughter waited for them. After viewing what was left of his beautiful daughter, Joseph Callum, who had graduated from the University of Michigan years earlier, broke down in grief, announcing loudly to the reporters who were assembled, I don't want her body. I want her alive. Grim-faced detectives hurried them out of the hospital and took them to the quiet of the police department away from the press. Their daughter, who was born Christmas Day, 1947, is now buried in Kalamazoo. On the 11th of June, just two days after Callum was murdered, the University of Michigan president, Robin Fleming, spoke to Callum's father and assured him that steps were being taken to protect students. Fleming addressed the press, saying, We have done all we can think of to protect the school's students. We have cooperated with the police completely and asked their advice as to what else we might do. Fleming called a campus-wide curfew impractical since nearly 40% of the student body was made up of graduate students who lived off campus. Fleming reiterated that the university was cooperating fully with police. Female students from both universities were reminded to never hitchhike and encouraged to travel in pairs. In fact, that summer, the university drafted plans for a student escort service. And yeah, that's what they called it, student escort service. And no, not that kind of service. This was a program for female students to ensure that they weren't walking alone at night. This measure would be pitched to the Board of Regents at their next meeting. Also, a $7,500 reward was offered by the university leading to the arrest of Callum's killer. Yes, you heard that right. They're offering this large cash reward, but only in Callum's death. At the time, there were several rewards available from the Ypsilanti Press, the Eastern Echo Student Newspaper for Eastern Michigan University, the Detroit News offered multiple cash rewards, and the Ann Arbor City Council put up money as well. But listeners, none of the reward money will be collected. In fact, most of the money earmarked by the Ann Arbor City Council as a reward would go to overtime pay for beleaguered Ann Arbor police detectives who chased leads and scoured wooded crime scenes. On Saturday, June 14th, Callum's apartment, which had been sealed as a crime scene, was burglarized. The burglary appeared to take place during her 11 a.m. funeral service in Kalamazoo. Chief Krasny found himself once again publicly embarrassed by the murderer, who had left clothing in the basement of the farmhouse while it was being periodically checked by law enforcement. Not to mention the row of lilacs left there about the time of the fire. And while tips and leads were coming in, Campus patrols at Eastern and Michigan were increased. Remember, we've had four bodies in three months—Mixer, Skelton, Bassam, and Callum. The public was understandably frightened, and they wanted an arrest. The governor reminded the police that his 21-year-old daughter, Elaine, was a student at Michigan. Elaine was not living on campus for the summer. Milliken made sure she returned home. Adding to the pressure was the local press mocking the Ann Arbor Police and the Sheriff's Department. They used the term Keystone Cops to describe their investigations into the killer. And of course, while all of these killings are going on, the departments had other crimes and other murders to deal with. And from June 16th through June 20th, an event that would become known as the Battle of Ann Arbor took place with several days and nights of raucous street parties where protesters and partiers alike took over sections of the downtown. They used cars, dumpsters, whatever they could to block off sections of the town to traffic. The second night of the Battle of Ann Arbor brought upwards of a 1,000 people to the festivities, which were nonviolent, and little damage was done other than some broken windows and minor vandalism. But again, traffic is brought to a halt by the throngs of hundreds of people dancing, smoking, and doing other things in the heart of downtown. Hundreds of officers from campus police, the Ann Arbor police, and the Washtenaw County sheriff stepped in to maintain order. Tear gas was used to disperse crowds who retaliated by throwing rocks at police. The next night, riot police, dogs, and armored vehicles were stationed nearby, should the revelry and protest get out of hand. Listeners, it was chaos for three days while police are trying to find a killer. On the last day of the battle, representatives from the community, including the mayor of Ann Arbor, faculty and staff from the universities, local clergy, and other community leaders stepped in to have a one-on-one conversation with the youths involved. They just walked into the middle of the chaos and started talking to people. They asked for calm, and they asked for order, and their request? It was granted." These conversations, along with a night of heavy rainfall, brought an end to the battle of Ann Arbor. Riot police from six different agencies, the armored vehicles, and the dogs, they were sent home. Ann Arbor was once again a college town, not the site of near riots. The battle was followed by two weeks of calm and quiet in the community. No new victims, no new suspects, but everyone was waiting. People were on edge. On July 5th, 1969, the calm was broken when graduate student Margaret Phillips was shot in her apartment. People jumped to the conclusion that the Ripper had struck again. But this attack didn't fit the pattern, and for good reason, it wasn't him. Margaret Phillips was shot by an acquaintance. She'd invited 28-year-old Ernest Bishop Jr. into her apartment the night of the 5th. They'd had an argument, and he'd shot her. Bishop was quickly rolled out in the Ypsilanti River slangs, as he'd been incarcerated from 1966 through the end of 1968. Phillips died on July 6th from her injuries, and Bishop was taken into custody, tried and found not guilty by reason of insanity. 28-year-old Bishop had been sentenced back in 1959 to 10 to 20 years for rape. He was paroled in September of 66 after serving only seven years. He reoffended on an unknown charge and returned to prison in May of 67, being released in December of 68. Unfortunately, I couldn't find out what became of him after the murder of Margaret Phillips. On July 23, 1969, 18 year old Eastern Michigan University freshman Karen Sue Beineman arrived at a wig shop. It was just after lunchtime, and while the petite brunette was making her selection, She said something that caught the attention of the store owner. I've done two foolish things in my life. I bought this wig, and I accepted a motorcycle ride from a stranger. Listeners, Beineman should have known better than to be accepting rides from strangers, especially in light of what was going on in the community. The store owner, Diana Gosh, could not dissuade the young woman from leaving with the man. So she walked outside with her and looked him over. But this was not enough to save Beineman's life. Her nude, severely beaten body was found two days later on Riverside Drive in Ann Arbor. Beineman was naked except for her sandals. There was a cloth shoved into her throat to muffle her screams. And, like previous victims, she'd been killed elsewhere and dumped. In July of 1969, prior to Beineman's death, a group of Ann Arbor citizens had a psychic flown in. Peter Herkos visited Washtenaw County on July 21st. While he was there, he said the killer was white, strong, and under 25 years of age. He also said that the killer was not from the United States and that the killer owned a motorcycle. Today, we know that he was correct on all counts. On July 26th, when Bynum's body was found, Herkos showed up at the site asking for access. Sheriff Harvey was shocked when Herkos insisted that he needed to be alone with Binaman's body. Sheriff Harvey wanted nothing to do with the psychic, and the request was declined. Herkos had to make do with exploring the spot where she was found after police were done with the area. Interestingly, despite the appearance at the site of the psychic, the local press had not picked up on her murder, so police decided they were going to make a play. They knew the killer liked to return to his victims. He'd moved Fleazar and Shell's bodies after they were dead. So they worked quickly and quietly. They removed Bynum's remains and replaced them with a mannequin. Then, they had officers hide in the woods to observe the remote spot in a deep ditch on the side of the road. By staking out the site, maybe they could catch him that way. And I want to be clear. This was not a simple roadside arrangement. The area where Bideman was left is described as a deep ditch, a gully, and a ravine, a location that is well below the surface of the road. It was not an easy spot to stake out. Then you throw in almost total darkness, a flurry of hungry mosquitoes, and a persistent driving rain? This was not a recipe for success. But law enforcement took their positions. They hid in the woods and they waited. The rain began to fall, and still they waited. It was a dark, humid, wet night. The mosquitoes were everywhere, but they kept their eyes on the location of the body, and suddenly, a man appeared, and he was walking toward the remains. The officer on the scene tried using his radio to advise that he'd spotted the killer, but his radio wasn't working because it had become soaked with rainwater. Since he couldn't raise backup, he jumped up and gave chase to the man, running after him, but he lost him in the woods, which turned to swamp. It's thought that the killer not only waded through the swamp, but that he jumped into the Huron River and swam across the river to avoid apprehension. And it worked because he remained at large. Unlike the discovery of Bynum's body, this was a story that couldn't be kept quiet. The killer had slipped through their fingers and everyone found out. The tale was played out in the press and the department was again humiliated. Sheriff Harvey defended his men. They had to cover the area, but do so without being seen by the killer. It was pitch black outside and it was during a rainstorm. But listeners, it didn't matter. Governor Milliken had had enough. He invoked an obscure law to remove local law enforcement from the case and turned the whole thing over to the Michigan State Police. But what the governor didn't know is that a rookie patrolman from Eastern Michigan University is about to blow the case wide open. Meanwhile, Bynum is taken to the medical examiner for autopsy. Again, we're getting graphic with details. Hendricks discovered that her underwear had been forcibly placed inside of her vagina, and they were covered with short blonde hair trimmings. The hairs had not come from Bynum, who was a brunette. Hendricks set aside samples of the hair trimmings for future reference. Bynum had also been beaten severely. One of her teeth was broken from the blows, and her face was covered in bruises. He noted that Bynum ate approximately three hours before her death, which meant she was murdered about two hours after she left the wig shop. She was last seen with a dark-haired young man on a motorcycle. This was the guy, and the wig shop owner got a good look at him, too. Police just needed to find him. Larry Mathewson, a recent Eastern Michigan University graduate and one of the newer members of the Eastern Michigan University Police Force, he thought the description given by the clerk at the wig store of a handsome, dark-haired student on a motorcycle sounded like one of his frat brothers. Well, former frat brother. John Norman Collins had been evicted from the fraternity after repeatedly stealing from his brothers. He was also a known motorcycle fanatic. In fact, Matthewson had seen him riding through town on the 23rd of July with a pretty brunette on the back of his bike. Collins had been questioned by the Ann Arbor Police Department previously, but he was so polite, mannerly, and helpful. Plus, he mentioned that his uncle, Corporal Like of the Michigan State Police, would vouch for him, so they let him go. When Like was questioned, he admitted that he and his wife had been out of town over the weekend that Bynum was killed. And John had stayed at their home to watch their German Shepherd dog. After he was questioned, like returned to his home and did a careful walk through. Not as a resident, but he looked at the house using his training as a state trooper, and what he discovered shook him. There was black paint sprayed on the floor in the basement. Why had his basement floor been painted? There was also some washing powder missing, as well as a bottle of ammonia and a can of black spray paint. Like was suspicious. He thought that his nephew could be involved, but he didn't want to alarm his wife, who was very close to John. So Like made some calls and requested that texts from the Michigan State Police Crime Lab come to the house to see what they could find. Well, listeners, they found a great deal. Blood spatter on the walls and floor, a fingerprint preserved in fresh black spray paint. They found hair clippings in the basement under the washing machine, The hair clippings had a wholesome explanation. When Lyke's children were young, their mother had given them haircuts in the basement. The blonde hairs found matched the clippings recovered from inside Bynum's body. Once the samples were back at the lab, they determined that the blood spatter in the basement of the Lyke home matched Bynum's blood type. Remember, we're dealing with 1969 technology, so blood typing and fingerprints, that's about all we've got. They learned that the print preserved in black paint belonged to John Norman Collins. Now, their evidence was mostly circumstantial, but it was piling up all around the college senior. They interviewed Collins' housemates and his co-workers, and not one of them had anything good to say about him. Former girlfriends said he'd been rough with them during sex and that he enjoyed bondage. While Collins was handsome, studious, and athletic, he was not a nice person. It was Washtenaw County Sheriff Douglas Harvey who, on July 31st, 1969, brought charges against John Norman Collins for the murder of Karen Sue Bynum. After all he and his team had been through, it must have been a good feeling to have a suspect in custody. The nightmare of murdered women and battered bodies by the roadside is over, but the longest and most expensive criminal trial in Washtenaw County history is taking shape. Watch for part two in this series coming soon. I'm Nina Instead, the writer, producer, and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please, be safe. (laughs)